0: Picking up where we left off last Sunday in the Gospel of John, chapter 20, we will begin the reading at verse 24, which is actually attached to that preceding passage, which we read, about Jesus' first appearance to the disciples gathered as a group, that is the ten disciples, Judas... Having already committed suicide, Thomas not being with them on that first evening, Jesus appeared to the 10, and then we're, we're going to then pick up uh, at verse 24 and read through the end of chapter 20. And so I invite you to take your Bible, one of the few Bibles, and open it uh, for the reading of God's Holy Word, let us pray. Our Father, we thank you that in the armor which you give us, you have given to us the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing and dividing even soul and spirit. And we pray that your word, by the power of your spirit indeed, would search our hearts. We pray that you would do your work of conviction, conversion, and consecration in our lives. To the glory of your most holy name, through Jesus Christ, our risen Savior. In whose name we pray, amen. Amen. So picking up at verse 24, we read the word of God. Now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But Thomas said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace, Be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. To him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ be all praise, honor, glory, and dominion forever and ever. Amen. In this wonderful passage... The most unyielding skeptic has bequeathed to us the most profound confession of faith. That's how one biblical scholar has commented on this passage. The Apostle Thomas, with all of his doubts and unwillingness to believe, has in fact provided a foundation of faith for believers in Christ throughout the centuries, through Thomas's doubts and unbelief, unbelief, many have come to believe and their faith has been strengthened. So my prayer this morning is that the preaching of this passage today would accomplish at least three things among us and within us. Number one, that it would be a great encouragement to you who believe in Christ, strengthening your faith with a reassurance of the historical veracity of the gospel and the intellectual integrity of the Christian faith. Secondly, for those of you who may be here who do not yet truly believe in Christ, who have your doubts and your uncertainties, perhaps even willful unbelief, my prayer is that the Holy Spirit would use this passage to cause you to doubt your doubts. Doubt your doubts. And honestly consider the evidence set forth so that you would today sincerely confess Jesus Christ to be your Lord and your God. And thirdly, that we all as true believers in Christ might rejoice with unspeakable joy in the possession of eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. For these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Now, through the years, commentators have given different, interpretations or explanations of Thomas's unbelief based on two other passages in the Gospel of John, chapter 11 and then chapter 14, in which Thomas speaks in rather a diffident or doubtful tone. Some scholars speculate that Thomas was a, a rather pessimistic personality in, in general, perhaps morose perhaps more inclined to see things in a negative light rather than positive, someone who, for whatever reason, was slow to get on board, perhaps a little slow in perceiving spiritual truth, and therefore slow to step out in faith. You know anybody like that? You know, very diffident, tentative, very cautious, When it comes to matters of personal faith and commitment, for some reason, always raising supposed reasons for doubt or putting forth objections that have to be answered, putting up defenses and justifications for their unbelief, almost as though they're finding excuses for their unbelief or or at least their reticence to make a full commitment to Christ or or, or, or lacking in joyful faith, sort of following Jesus half-heartedly in a foot-dragging manner. You know anybody like that? Is it you? Maybe you can identify with Thomas here. Thomas may, he he may have been inclined that way in, in terms of his personality and temperament, and the crucifixion of Jesus may have sent him over the edge. He He had wanted to believe in Jesus, he had begun to believe in Jesus, but then look what happened. Perhaps Thomas was disappointed and disillusioned because his years of following Jesus had led to a dead end, and he was done with it. His temperament, his disposition painful personal experience, all combined to make Thomas a confirmed unbeliever, an unyielding skeptic. That can happen. Another interpretation of Thomas is that he is in fact a thoroughly modern man right there in the first century. A rationalist, enlightenment, intellectual. You know, you'll, you'll often hear it said, you will hear it said that since the Bible is an ancient book, written in pre-scientific times for pre-scientific people who were supposedly easily inclined to believe in supposedly mythological miracles such as virgin births and resurrections from the dead, that therefore, you will hear it said, the Bible is irrelevant to a life in our modern scientific era. And you will hear that said by people who pride themselves on being rational, enlightened intellectuals. Well, the problem is that that argument, their argument is illogical and irrational. It does not square with the facts of the gospel narrative. Meet Doubting Thomas, if you will a man with a thoroughly modern mind, an enlightenment rationalist, indeed a scientist, if you please, who insists upon having empirical evidence perceived by the senses. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Thank the Lord for Thomas. That's Thomas in the first century in Jerusalem. Within the first week of Jesus' death, fully convinced of the reality of Jesus' death, unwilling to believe that Jesus had been raised from the dead, not easily inclined to believe or to accept such things on so-called blind faith. Note also that Thomas would not accept the testimony of even his closest and most trusted friends, but rather demanded empirical evidence which he himself could evaluate, evidence which he did not expect to find. But Thomas wasn't the only one who doubted. All four of the Gospels tell us that all of the disciples had their doubts. None of the disciples expected Jesus to rise from the dead. You know, first century men and women did not know everything we now know about the universe, but they knew about death, its reality, and its finality. They were not primitive, superstitious fools. And the modern skepticism or doubt about Jesus' resurrection is not, it's not really modern at all. There is nothing modern about it. Skepticism and doubt about Jesus' bodily resurrection were there immediately in the first century in the minds of those who had loved Jesus, followed him, and placed their hope in him. And so this passage provides a great encouragement to bolster our faith The first century apostles had a very realistic understanding of Jesus' death, and only the reality of his bodily resurrection could change their minds and convince them that Jesus was indeed who he said he was, the Christ, the Son of God, the divine man. He appeared to them in order to convince them that he had accomplished what he had come to do, and that God the Father had raised him from the dead, revealing him to be the Son of God, and that therefore he was worthy of their absolute allegiance, complete obedience, and heartfelt worship. And all of that applies to us as well today. The apostolic witness written in the Gospels securely grounds our faith in the reality of Jesus' resurrection in the New Testament. We have the historical record of honest doubt being wiped away by convincing proof. In the New Testament, we have the historical record of honest doubt being wiped away by convincing proof. And that ought to bolster the faith of believers, and it ought to confront and challenge the doubts of unbelievers. The first convincing proof occurred As we read last Sunday from the previous passage, on the evening of the resurrection day, that is, on the evening of what we would call the first Easter Sunday, the disciples were behind uh, locked doors when Jesus suddenly appeared to them and showed them his hands and his side, but Thomas was not there when Jesus appeared to the other ten disciples on that first Easter evening. Where was Thomas? We don't know. Why wasn't he there with the other ten? We don't know. Was his absence from the group a sign of his despondency and despair? We don't know. What we do know, however, now think about this. What we do know is that Jesus chose to appear to that group of ten disciples while Thomas was not there. That's what we know. Jesus chose to appear to the ten when Thomas was not there. Don't you think Jesus knew that Thomas was not there? And yet Jesus chose to appear while Thomas was not there? We might reasonably surmise that the risen Lord did this intentionally, as he did everything in order to make a point precisely by appearing while Thomas was absent on that first Easter evening. I think it may have been Jesus' strategy for wiping away all doubt, not only for Thomas's sake, but also for ours. And then, on that, on that first Easter evening, some time later, after Jesus had appeared to the ten and then vanished from their sight, at some point later, either when, when Thomas had rejoined them there, or perhaps, perhaps, the ten went with joy to find Thomas. And they told him. We have seen the Lord. And that is when Thomas made his absolute statement of skepticism, his unyielding skepticism and willful unbelief. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Yes, those are the words of the most unyielding skeptic. Then... John tells us that eight days later, and in the Jewish way of counting days, that means the following Sunday, the Sunday after that first Easter Sunday, eight days later, the disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. The scene is basically a repetition of what had happened on that Easter evening, except that Thomas was present on this following Sunday. Now, I hope you will note the detail here and get the point. Jesus rose on a Sunday and appeared to his disciples on that Sunday evening, and now again, On the following Sunday, Jesus appeared to his gathered disciples. Do you see a pattern here? You see a pattern? Jesus meets with his disciples on Sunday as a confirmation and celebration and revelation of his resurrection, which occurred on a Sunday That's the reason that we gather on Sunday, the first day of the week. Although we believe that Jesus is with us always, every day, we also see from Scripture, not only in this passage, but also others, that the risen Lord meets with his gathered believers in a particular way, for a particular purpose, on Sunday, the first day of the week, which is called the Lord's Day. This is the risen Lord's ordinary means of revealing His presence with His gathered people. The gathering on the Lord's Day, Christian worship on the Lord's Day, the weekly celebration of His resurrection. Now that does raise a rather provocative question, doesn't it? What better more important, more beneficial thing do you have to do on Sunday than meet with the risen Lord together with his gathered believers on the day he has appointed. Have you really got something better to do? The next time you think about opting out absenting yourself from worship on the Lord's Day, just ask yourself this question. Do I believe that Jesus is going to be there or not? Do I believe that Jesus is going to be there and that He would actually bless me through His Word and Spirit and actually speak to my heart, comfort my soul, give me direction, reassure me of his love, put his arms around me with the promise of his forgiveness or, or give me some new spiritual insight for the strengthening of my soul and the living of my life, do, do I believe he will be there or not? And if the risen Lord is going to be there, then what better, more important, more beneficial thing could I possibly do? Let me tell you, if you've got something better to do than to be in the presence of the risen Lord whose glorified body still bears the marks of the wounds he suffered for you, something better and more beneficial to do than worship the one who saved you from hell and pronounces the blessing of his peace upon you, You got something better to do? By all means, go do it. As Pastor Jonathan wisely said on Easter Sunday, every Sunday is Easter Sunday. And Jesus showed us from the very beginning that he meets with his gathered disciples on the first day of the week as a confirmation, celebration, and revelation of his resurrection to bless his believing people. And by the way, you see, it was on the next day, the next Sunday, that is. It was on a Sunday that Jesus wiped away Thomas's doubts. Are you a doubter? Are you a doubter? Absenting yourself on the Lord's day will not help you with your doubts. So do you want to keep your doubts? Or do you want the risen Jesus to deal with your doubts? Let me push into that a little bit. Because unbelief is not, first of all, a matter of the mind, the intellect. No, it's not. Unbelief is, first of all, a matter of the heart, the will. It is true that people do not believe because they are unwilling to believe. They don't want to believe because believing in Christ would cost them too much. You know anybody like that? Is it you? Let me ask you a serious question. Do you want the risen Lord Jesus to deal with your doubts or not? Do you want the Lord Jesus to do away with your unbelief or not? That's a serious question because only the Lord Jesus has the power to do away with your unbelief. Only the Lord Jesus has the power by his Spirit to change your heart, Open your heart, change and turn your will. Open your eyes, so that you might see Him, for who He is, Lord and God. So let's see how Jesus is de- how Jesus dealt with Thomas. After He gave His blessing of peace, He said to Thomas, "Put your finger here and see My hands, and put out your hand and." Place it in my side. Now just think about Jesus' words. Jesus was, in effect, repeating back to Thomas exactly what Thomas himself had said. Did you get that? What does that tell us? Well, it tells us that Jesus had heard Thomas's demand for proof. Jesus had been in that locked room, though not visible, when Thomas had spoken. His unyielding skepticism. Jesus is in this room, though not visible. He knows us. He knows our hearts. He knows our thoughts. He knows our every need. And he knows, he knows what you need. For the bolstering of your faith He knows what you need for the encouragement of your soul. He knows what you need for the demolition of your doubts. Be comforted by the fact that Jesus was very gracious and kind to Thomas. Jesus responded to Thomas exactly according to his need. He did not excommunicate or disqualify Thomas as an apostle for his doubts. He did not berate or browbeat Thomas in front of the other ten. He gave Thomas, so to speak, a second chance by showing Thomas his wounds, just as he had shown the other ten. But because Thomas had spoken so adamantly, the Lord did give Thomas a gentle rebuke when he said, do not disbelieve, but believe, which, which, which can also be translated, do not be an unbeliever, but a believer. It was a call to Thomas. And the implication is that Thomas ought to have believed because Jesus had told him that he would rise again. Furthermore, Thomas ought to have believed the testimony of the other ten. Jesus confronted Thomas's willful unbelief and rebuked it. Jesus called Thomas to leave behind his life of unbelief and to become a true believer. Have you heard that call? And when Thomas saw Jesus, his hands in his side, and heard Jesus' gentle rebuke, he cried out, My Lord and my God. And so the most unyielding skeptic bequeathed to us the most profound confession of faith. And it was a most profound confession of faith because either it is true, Jesus is Lord and God, or it is blasphemy, worthy of death. If it were blasphemy, The Apostle John would not have recorded it. But more to the point, if it were blasphemy, Jesus would have rebuked Thomas with the most vehement rejection of his words. But please note that Jesus did not rebuke Thomas for calling him his Lord and God. Jesus received Thomas's worship. There is no clearer affirmation of the deity of Jesus Christ than the fact that Jesus accepted and affirmed Thomas's profound confession of faith. Jesus then said to thomas, Words which ought to thrill our souls, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed jesus' words are in the in the present perfect tense, but they they are looking to the future Jesus with these words, has in mind those for whom he prayed in his great high priestly prayer in the garden of Gethsemane on the night in which he was betrayed, when he prayed to his father for those who would come to believe in me through their word, through the word of the apostles. Jesus had in mind the innumerable multitude throughout history who would come to believe in him through the word of the apostles, even the word of the apostle Thomas. Those who would hear and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ recorded in the New Testament and faithfully proclaimed throughout history unto this very day, right here, right now. This is the marvel and mystery of the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit such that people all over the world for the past 2,000 years have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ not only with their ears but also with their hearts and have believed in him even to the point of giving their very lives for Him without seeing Him. My dear friend, if you want the Lord Jesus to do away with your unbelief, then ask Him to. Come to meet with Him every Sunday, asking Him to speak His Word to you by the power of His Spirit, to make Himself known to you in a deeper, richer way. If you want the risen Lord Jesus to do away with your doubts, open the Bible and start reading His Word, asking Him to speak to you. The Gospel of John is a very good place to start. The risen Lord Jesus reveals himself to us now not by literally appearing to us in his glorified body, which would undo us, but by speaking to us by his spirit through his word written in scripture. And the miracle of miracles, the miracle of miracles is that those who cannot now see Him believe in Him as though they had seen Him. Is that you? There's a very real sense. I I, I trust that you will have some intuition of this, some apprehension of this in the experience of your own soul. There is a very real sense that when Jesus makes himself known by his word and spirit in the heart and soul of a person it is as though it is as though it is as though it is as real as if the lord Jesus appeared in a locked room and showed his hands inside and said do not disbelieve but believe. So I hope that through this passage, the Lord himself will bolster your faith. Pray that the Lord will demolish your doubts so that you leave behind your life of unbelief. I pray that the Lord will fill our hearts with the unspeakable joy through the possession of eternal life, because these things have been written, brothers and sisters, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. To God be the glory. Amen. Let us pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for the gift of Your only begotten Son, Jesus, for His great work on the cross, for His triumph over death, for the revelation of His resurrection to His apostles, for His ascension into heaven, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and the writing of Your Holy Word in Scripture. so that we might believe and have life in his name. Do what only you can do, to convict, to convert, and to consecrate us to a life lived for your glory, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us stand together to affirm our faith, as we say together, the Philippian Creed based on Philippians chapter 2. Christians, in whom do you believe? We believe in Christ Jesus. That though we lost the form of God, did not count the qualities of God, wrath, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found. The honored himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is all every name, so that every the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ.